Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and to encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that community is essential for our well-being. And I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals who enjoy collaborating and cooperating. We enjoy doing all kinds of things together, from sewing circles to poker games to playing games, ball games together, to watching things together. And one thing we really love doing together as tribal animals is we love eating together. Getting around in a circle or at a big table and eating together is something that we really enjoy. We like each other. However, there's always a however. However, we must be aware and ever mindful that there is a small percentage of us who are very different. These are predators who would dominate the rest of us. These are the people, when we came out of the caves, who had the biggest club. These are the people who wielded that club and dominated others and eventually became tribal chieftains. As the tribes got larger, they eventually anointed themselves as kings. And eventually those kings made a pact with the church so that they ruled by divine right. When they had that, they had it all. Because what it meant was, if you went against the king, you also went against God. So kings ruled, and they ruled just as dictators do by having subjects. A couple of hundred years ago, a little more than that, we overthrew the king and we went against the church for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Remember, the Greeks had experiments with democracy and republic, as so did the Romans, but they lost it. The Romans lost their republic when Caesar crossed the Rubicon and made an empire. We could lose our democracy and our republic because throughout history, there have been other people like Caesar, other people who would rule us rather than a let us be citizens. We are a democracy and a republic, but our democracy and a republic is a, is a fragile experiment. And we must be ever mindful to maintain our democracy and our republic. A democracy, one person, one vote. A republic, everyone equal before the law. No one has say over anyone else. So I'm asking you, dear friends, to be ever mindful of the fragility of our democratic republic and to vote and stay politically aware, even in these very hard economic times. I am critically aware of the fact that 70% of us right now are living paycheck to paycheck and are dealing with such issues as rent and food and heat. And you might be thinking, what is he talking about? Stay politically aware. I'm just trying to get food on the table. And I'm saying, even when we're still trying to get food on the table and pay the rent, we must be politically aware if we want to maintain our status as citizens rather than subjects. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, I have with me, and I have the privilege, the privilege of having with me, someone who is working hard to maintain our democracy and our republic. 
Tony Lay is the research director at Mother Tree Labs. He's also a fellow at the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. We're going to find out what Mother Tree Labs is. We're going to find out about what informatics is when we talk to Tony. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Tony. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Tony, if you had a magic wand, which I'm about to hand you, and anything could come of this interview that you want based on your waving the wand, tell me what it is, and I'm going to do everything I can to support your mission and collaborate with you. Thank you so much, Richard. That's a very, very kind and warm invitation. And I'm grateful to you for gathering this engaged and aware audience who are seeking to understand these connections, these intersections between the different parts of our bodies, minds, spirits, and body politic, the spirit politic. There's many layers to how we come to know things, and there's many ways in which we step into the unknown. And I I think if I were to wave a magic wand, I would hope that we might help provide some pathway or reflection upon what it's like to step into the unknown together. To, to step into the unknown. Yes, yes. What is the unknown for you, Tony Lay? What, tell me some of the things that you relate to. What resonates in your consciousness when you think about the unknown? I've been very fortunate over the last few weeks, months, and years to have space and have guidance from new friends and old in the practices and the ancestral and new wisdoms and technologies and approaches for how we step into a space where not everything is certain and a space where things are changing and a space where we're willing to accept some of the mystery of a, of a situation. And I was reading into some of the notions of the great mystery that is, as I understand, part of many Native American traditions and the source in many ways of many of the creative impulses and energies that we feel and we see, but also something that is said to imbue everything in the universe. And I think as we lean in on all the different axes of, of knowing and understanding from the scientific, when it comes to quantum physics and constantly seeking to understand more about the way that the physical world works. And we're starting to understand that concepts like entanglement and superposition and probability, and these are all aspects of, in a sense, a new way of knowing that is less fixed and Cartesian and structured like potentially we might have once imagined things might be structured. And I think this relationship with the unknown is something that I've personally found joy in exploring both with both both internally and with others as well. And music's also been a wonderful pathway for exploring that yes, I, that I'm, feeling of, of joy and delight. In I'm quite aware of that. You're a, you're a magnificent violin player, and I've had the privilege of being in your presence when you're playing. Tell us about Mother Tree. Do you do some of this research into the unknown at Mother Tree? And if so, talk about it. Well, Mother Tree Labs is a nonprofit educational initiative that I started with Susanna Eichler. Uh, she's a storyteller. She's a filmmaker. She's a creative through and through. Uh, and my background's more coming from the research side of late. My original 
education, formal education focused around history. And so stories in a sense there. And I went from there into law. And then I went to Silicon Valley and I built technology for access to justice and to help with some of the the challenges with the legal system that I saw. From there, I started looking at the intersection between law and technology. And this, again, these were two systems of knowing, systems of belief, systems of creating protections, as it were, from the predators who are different that you talked about. But at the same time, they've also become tools and mechanisms for those predators in various different ways. And we can get into a lot of that. But at heart, Mother Tree Labs is seeking to take this intersection between law, technology, and storytelling uh, as part of retelling the story of interbeing and retelling the story of the old and emerging stories and systems and identities that help us figure this transformation for each of us on our own paths towards equity and planetary health. It's something that I've been drawn to and I've been called into. And and again, it's a pathway into the unknown. And the hope is that in documenting and charting in an open learning journey, our own pathways into the unknown, we can gather others alongside us as we try and weave some new sense from the many things that are changing around us. Let's see if we can deconstruct some of what you're saying so that our listeners are really clear. So for example, when you talk about storytelling, are you talking about stories from history? Are you talking about making up stories? What kind of stories are you talking about that you're bringing into play in order to have a greater understanding of what this is all about? I'm talking about the kinds of stories that you started this radio podcast with. You were telling the story of democracy. You were telling the story of republics. And I think these are the stories that underlie wider systems like the legal system. They underlie the reason why things have legitimacy. They underlie the reasons why we believe the things that we believe, the reasons why we behave the way that we behave, not just as individuals, but as collectives, as part of an ecology of interacting interdependent consciousnesses. And those stories can be variously embedded both on a psychological level, but also on a structural, systematic, technological, and legal level. And so the approach to trying to find consistency from the things that we feel internally, individually, and then collectively as groups in terms of relationships and resonance, and how those truly play out in terms of the technological and legal structures that we're able to build anew because of the, the ways in which those areas are evolving together to create, in a sense, the hard rails of a potentially very, very dystopian story if we are to let things continue along the way some people might take us in terms of a surveillance state with the kinds of laws against protest and the stories of fear and crime and immigrants who are going to take our jobs. All of these are stories that lead to policies and technologies of authoritarianism and control. And I think if we are to steer away from those paths towards paths where we might imagine local communities thriving and flourishing in interbeing with nature and each other as part of the social units that enable us to feel belonging. These stories that we can tell each other of interbeing and unlearning and learning together, how those then play out again into these hard structures of law and technology that are going to be framing a lot of the defaults that we're potentially steering towards as 
more and more digital platforms come to mediate the ways that we interact and transact. Again, there's the promise potentially of being able to embed the stories of relationality, the stories of sacredness as part of seeing a fellow consciousness as part of a transaction and imbuing those transactions with the story that we are one. Again, these are all stories that we might tell each other, but they have power when they get embedded in various different ways. And and we're seeking to unpack that and learn about those in the open because we've both had our respective journeys and both of us are now called into the, I think, the challenge and the coherence that we're both feeling around the planetary crisis and the, the poly crisis, as many have said, but both climate and politics, freedom, and these stories that we might tell one another still through individual, community, collective, local, as well as state, national, and international action. And so things are happening at every layer. And there's some wonderful story weavers like Martin Weinstein, who you had on your show previously, who's weaving that different kind of story at that global inter national, but also inter-community climate and planetary health level. And I think there are many, many of the many, many different versions of these stories that we can all be inspired by in different ways. And we're seeking to weave those stories together. You used three words in a row as you were talking that jumped right out at me. And the three words were, we are one. And, and when you said that, that re- revealed a an ideology, a, 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 a political belief system, a socio-cultural belief system, if you will. And I believe that the folks who believe that we are one, and certainly I am one of those, and I join you in that, they're, you're, we're what, what I call social humanists. And I differentiate the social humanists from the other force on the planet that I call social Darwinists. The social Darwinists believe in the king of the hill. They believe that those at the top deserve to be at the top, they should be at the top, and all the rest are, if you will, subjects. Whereas the social humanists believe, as you stated, we are one and that there's an abundance on the planet so that we can take care of everyone. We can feed, shelter, provide warmth and food and medical care and education for everyone on the planet. And I see these two groups, the groups, these two groups groping for, for, for superiority. You know, which group is going to rule the planet or is it going to be a mixture of the two? What's your thinking on what I just said? Thank you for categorizing with such beautiful words and Social Darwinism has a particular resonance to me, having studied history and the sort of early 20th century movements that were really taking, taking up space in the minds of many people all around the world as part of this first wave of modernity. And modernity was all about notions of progress and notions of outcompeting other races or nations as part of this race to be first and survival of the fittest. And that was a very, very strong narrative. And I think that narrative still holds true for so many people, as you're saying. And, and at the same time, I, I, I just wanted to draw a distinction that I've invited myself into, been invited by others into, to, to consider, which is that these labels, these categorizations, they apply so much to the actions and the behaviors that, that happen in all sorts of different contexts. And I and, and just speaking for myself, I've been on a journey lately, and this is, again, something that 
I'm learning about with the help of friends and people who have a lot more experience in this, but that we carry many different parts inside of ourselves. And in some sense, there's a colonizer and a colonized within us all. Some, some ancestor of all of us has been on the receiving or the giving end of, of some version of social Darwinism and social humanism. And I myself have been the angry justice warrior who wants to fight. And at the same time, I've also been trying to give greater voice to the caregiver, listener, the one who makes space, the one who is a humanist, who's a social humanist and, and doesn't see the zero-sum gameness. And so I guess my response in terms of how we look to the future of these these concepts, these categories, these egregores, as it were, things that we might give power to as collective manifestations of thought, recognizing that we all have aspects of those inside of us ourselves and that we have the choice to surround ourselves with people who are behaving or manifesting more of one or the other in order to recognize that we are on a path, that everybody's on their own path and they're at some stage on the path. And the transition is going to be about knowing that we are holding those two things in balance within ourselves at all times. And what does it mean to recognize that maybe the social Darwinist side, it was just trying to protect us, just trying to protect the inner circle in some sense. There's aspects of that version of the philosophy, which is about safety and security and protection that is about the fear of somebody coming and taking what's yours and you needing to exert your property and your boundaries. And the other version is the caregiver and the compassionate one who holds space and believes that there is good and light in everybody. And I, I've felt those two different versions of me in so many different situations and the choice to see one or the other version of that egregore, that categorization of humanity in somebody that you're interacting with. I think that's the, that's the choice that we each make every time that we, that we do meet with someone and some of the greatest peacemakers in the world, Nelson Mandela meeting with a general who, you know, has been slaughtering, you know, hundreds, thousands of his, you know, fellow movement builders sitting down and pouring him tea, that willingness to be and identify with that social humanist is there and open to every single one of us, I believe. And, and, and knowing that, knowing that that is going to be a, a shared space in society, in each of us, but that we are each on a path and that we can walk with each other and help each other, you know, when we fall, when we fail, and we are going to fail, and we are going to be angry, and we're going to want to react in revenge. But caring for that part of ourselves as well, I think is part of the challenge, part of the learning journey that I think, you know, when we speak about saving the Amazon or saving the earth, actually, I think this is as much about saving ourselves and allowing the earth to save us. Tony, most of the world, most of the world, maybe in the 90% category, believe that there's such a thing as countries with borders. But really, there's no such thing as countries with borders. This is part of a story in your language that has been embedded in us going back to ancient times and creating these arbitrary borders called called countries is really nothing more or less than giving the leader within that perimeter power over the people in that landmass that the perimeter encompasses and divides that landmass and those people from the people right next door. But in actuality, all it takes is going up into space and looking down to recognize it's one planet. It's not a whole bunch of countries with little arbitrary lines. There's land mass and there's water mass. So 
given that that story, which I think is a story of dominance, and it's a story of we in this country need to protect ourselves, in your words, from those people in that nearby country because they're liable, again, in your words, to come and take something away from us. It's the exact opposite of goodwill and sharing, but it's a story that is so deeply embedded, these, these arbitrary borders and so on. Are, are we looking to be able to tell a different story to make ourselves more inclusive and more, in your words, we are one? The beautiful space one can hold when one thinks about the notion of we are one is to recognize the beauty of the diversity within that concept and within that notion. There are some beautiful storytellers, activists, and academics who are writing about the pluriverse. And the pluriverse is this, this idea and this manifestation of a, an abundance of ways in which we might seek to belong together in thriving, flourishing ways without seeking to control the other. A world where we can opt in to communal groupings that align with the kinds of values and cultures that we want to perpetuate and be a part of. And, and this kind of flourishing doesn't necessarily depend upon the same kind of economic development metrics of gross domestic production, but might be more framed around notions of the good life, buen vivir, or ideas of gross national happiness. Again, these are all ways of framing what it means to come together and strive for something together. And I think one of the beautiful spaces we're in in this day and age is that we're starting to look at ways in which people can come together in, 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 in forms that actually don't undermine these traditional structures, but they can operate in parallel. They can give space beyond a, a homogenizing, single, controlling superstructure of a state. A state can sort of open itself into being the nurturer of a flourishing, diverse garden of many, many different kinds of communities and spaces that can interact and as a state, as a country, or whatever the kind of overarching entity, you know, you can say the EU as a super state or some agreement between bioregions that crosses between traditional country boundaries, you know, rights of nature coalitions that span from the Amazon to New Zealand, like these kinds of different sorts of ways of assigning and seeing identity allowing those values and cultural exchange frameworks to be the core of who you are, I think these can operate alongside countries. And as we see the different versions of countries play out and we see people hopefully with the continued opportunity to move and go to where they feel safe or able to be free, I think these are all avenues that we need to keep open as we, again, witness this movement into the unknown, because I don't think Anybody really knows what's going to be happening with countries. They've, they've lasted us since the Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century. And they were formed on the basis, as you say, of those who would claim divine right to rule as subjects, the people within their boundaries. And I think there've been revolutions and there've been evolutions of the notion of what is true and just in terms of what a country represents in terms of potentially serving the public good or serving the nurturing of a commons that is available to everybody. That, that, that speaks to upholding international norms and these things that go beyond countries, beyond the ken of national jurisdictions to 
global arms controls or and, and and obviously the big one is climate and the the biodiversity loss that's led to 90% of our plants and animals being de- decimated over the last few decades and so these kinds of supranational and subnational coalitions i think are going to be the future of the the web of belonging and action and listening and storytelling and weaving of ontologies that hopefully can provide a a more legitimate fair equitable framework for our future together beyond just that provided by countries. I'd like you to elaborate on two things that stood out for me of the very many interesting things you said. Please talk to us about the Rights of Nature Coalition. And you mentioned also the uh, gross national happiness, which we know the country of Bhutan has a czar, and uh, you're obviously familiar with that. So let's talk about those two. So, yeah, Maybe I could set some general context for the two things because they are closely related. Rights of nature is a concept that speaks to the legal system that we have created as humans. It's a story that we are telling ourselves, and it's about how we cooperate and coordinate as humans, but also in relation to the planet and the environment around us. And unfortunately, most of the systems of economics and law that we've had operating and coordinating us thus far, have seen nature as a resource to be extracted and killed and turned into something quote-unquote productive. And that's where GDP comes from. It comes from our labor plus the extraction from nature. And it doesn't take into account the actual inherent value of living nature to so many different contexts, whether it's water, air, our general health in terms of being in nature. There's many, many things that you've touched on in in your previous episodes that speak to the, the value of nature that is being destroyed, but that doesn't get brought within our legibility frameworks, such as the legal framework. And I'll speak to the economic framework separately, but the rights of nature movement is generally an attempt to shape our laws so that the kinds of relationships that we do want to encourage in relation to enabling nature to flourish and thrive and ourselves to thrive in relation to that nature, how that set of values is legible, is made legible to the legal system, that's actually what giving agency means. When we talk about agency and giving agency or personhood to somebody, whether it's a woman or a colored person or an ecological being, there's stages of legibility that we have given within the legal system to the activities and, and realities of that specific person that we're deigning to give legibility to. Again, this is somewhat of an arrogant approach. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of playing into this, this stance that we can sometimes adopt in relation to nature, which is, you know, frankly, quite an arrogant one. And I want to give a huge amount of respect to all the people who've been working in that rights of nature framework. And I also want to speak to the fact that many, many people know that nature will be just fine you know, at the end of the day. And this is, a, this is not about nature per se, but this is about saving us and our relationship with nature. And so at the end of the day, this is about how we manage humans rather than how we manage nature, how we manage humans in terms of our interactions with nature. And so that's, this is starting to happen on so many different levels. In New Zealand, they've given a forest and a mountain the, this personhood that gives specific relational weight to some of the actions that we might now take together 
uh, with regards to those pieces of nature. But even here in the United States, there are local municipalities that have voted overwhelmingly, over 90% from the left and the right across political spectrums uh, in Florida for giving waterways specific rights so that water can remain pure and so that the development that's happening and that runs right over these traditional ecological entities gets held up, doesn't happen in the same way. And that, and that is communities coming together. Now, how that speaks then to when we think about these alternate ways of seeing, these alternate ways of knowing, I think gross national happiness is, is a beautiful example of a country deciding that it wants to see and know and find ways of creating systems that see and know and create the behaviors that enable the recognition and acknowledgement of things that bring happiness, things that bring a good life. And I think this is much more central to the ways that we have lived in many different societies for many, many, many generations, many hundreds and thousands of generations. And the, in a sense, the Western European history of property and law and creating separation and, and control over rather than symbiosis with. I think that system is a relatively new system that has come to dominate you know, over the last four or 500 years. But deeper down within, I think, our human societal wisdoms in, in various different cultures around the world, where, and some of this is touched on by David Graeber in, in, in his book on kings, as well as 5,000 Years of Death and his most recent, The Dawn of Everything. And, yes. and he speaks of these social systems that are not based around property, that were communal, that had much more fundamental values that were based around communal thriving and flourishing. And, and I think the realignment of around some of these on a local level, on a community level, where we get to opt in to creating, in a sense, boundaries where the territorializing logics of late stage capitalism are kept at bay. And we're forming a boundary where in, in, inside that boundary, we can have a logical and emotional and spiritual system that values our happiness, thriving, flourishing into being. And, and, and that's, that's within reach. I'm saying that the stories are cohering and coalescing, and we're starting to be able to embed and imbue, I think, some of the open source technologies of law and governance and interaction, transaction. And, and again, this is, this is taking things in another direction, but uh, I, I think the, at the core, in response to your, your question around rights of nature and gross national happiness, these are in a sense, different ways that we're seeking to align our legal and economic systems with alternate values, different kinds of value dimensions that maybe have been invisible, but we want to bring to the fore again, like compassion and care and domestic labor, household family interactions that actually bring so much to so many people and how we actually encourage systems and structures that can help us into that kind of much more beautiful world that our hearts know as possible to, to paraphrase a fellow countryman. It's, it's a hopeful time, Richard. I, uh, I love when, when we, when we start weaving these kinds of things together. I love your optimism. I, I love your, your saying that it's a hopeful time because I've been thinking a great deal lately, Tony, that we as a species are a failed species because our history is a history of warfare and de devastation. The story, our story, is a history of killing and killing one another as we're doing right at this very moment. And 
the the major saving grace when I look at the world from this perspective, though fortunately it's not my only perspective, but when I look at it from this perspective, the only saving grace I see is that from an evolutionary perspective, we have figured out a way to become immortal, and that is by downloading our information base and our cognitive processor, a human, onto a chip, which will then put in robots. And then when we are able to download our consciousness, the robots will have full humanity. They'll have both the cognitive processing and the consciousness. And interestingly enough, I interviewed a man this week, Andres Gomez Emelson, who's down in Daly City with a company called Qualia, and they're actually working on measuring consciousness and looking for ways to do exactly what I just said, to be able to download consciousness onto a chip. Fascinating, fascinating stuff they're doing at that, at that outfit, Qualia. I'm going to learn a lot more about it. I don't, I don't necessarily see this downloading of the information and the consciousness onto a chip into a robotic form as necessarily negative because it could be simply evolutionary from Neanderthals to Homo sapiens to robots and then to something else. But I like your optimism because I love this form of life that we're able to live. And I'm grateful that we're given this opportunity. And so the way you're talking gives life to the hope that we can continue this, that we can fix some of these big problems, climate change, but even more so, allowing for a wider spread in gross national happiness. Because I I listened to you talk about how New Zealand is putting value on mountains and forests and creating personhood for them, which I love. But then I compare that to the United States, where we created personhood for a corporation. I mean, (laughs) it's almost the other end of the continuum. My my point was that I think this is starting to happen everywhere, and that's that's the reason for hope is that we have had this revolution called the internet, which has been a revolution ultimately in communications. It means that we can be sitting far from each other and having this conversation and, and looking at each other's smiles. You can be sitting. You can time- be sitting at Wilbur Hot Springs, having just recently come out of the medicine water, and I can be sitting in my office in Fort Bragg, and we're talking like we're right next to each other. Exactly, and 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 that is miraculous in itself. And yet, we are just beginning the series of miraculous transformations that are going to enable the revolution in value and the revolution in values. And when we talk about gross national happiness and we talk about rights of nature and we talk about some of the coming together of these systems of legibility, law, technology, finance, and we think about some of the possibilities that are coming online around regenerative finance, regenerative law, regenerative approaches to how we coordinate and organize, these are going to come across communities, nations, countries, places everywhere in the same way as the internet and Zoom and all of these things have as well. And these are going to be fundamentally woven into our daily lives so that we can actually value the things we want to value. We can actually bring back the kinds of mutual respect, distributed benefits, social humanity, ecological awareness, agency, all of these things that we might want to actually 
nurture in a community, we can bring back because those pieces are being built out as we speak in the open, as open source technology, as open source infrastructure for us all to be able to use. And, and for me, that, that, that is the piece that I hold on to. And it's far from the idea of downloading our consciousnesses. It's actually about how we interact and find each other, how we are able to translate not just our languages, but our whole worldviews. Because in some sense, that is actually what a lot of this AI can be about. It helps somebody who doesn't speak English as their first language be able to interact. Someone who doesn't speak code as their first language be able to code. Someone who doesn't speak or hasn't brought, been brought up in an indigenous worldview so it gives them a diplomatic framework to understand an entirely different ontology and actually sink into a way of truly understanding potentially. And, and again, this is, ju- this is just, you know, one conversation around, you know, the potential of AI and large language learning models that, you know, we've been having over the last few days in terms of what it might mean for actually greater understanding amongst peoples. And I think this, These levels of interoperability between people in terms of our aspirations, our hopes, the ways that we want to, again, bring about these common goals. I think these are coming online right now, and we're seeing the weaving of those. Part of my work right now is to follow that research. And with Susanna and others through this current instantiation of of a lab, we're trying to tell the story and make that as available as possible to everybody because it's very exciting. I'm going to take a sidebar before I come back to responding to what you said. And the sidebar is, I don't mean to be arrogant, but I'm changing the name of artificial intelligence. I don't like it. There's nothing artificial about it. I think artificial has, a, has baggage. The word has baggage in our culture. It means something that's not real, that's sort of phony or false. So I'm using creative intelligence because I think we created the intelligence. It's not artificial at all, and I'm referring to it as CI. Now, mm, come, I like that. Thank you. Maybe you'll join me in that endeavor. CI, creative intelligence. We created it. Now, I want to m- comment on gross national happiness for people who don't aren't familiar with that. The con- and, and correct me if you have a different version of this, but my understanding is that the country of Bhutan has a gross national happiness czar and that decisions are made in the country, not necessarily based on bottom line money, but based on bottom line, how many people will derive happiness from the particular endeavor. Is that how you understand it? Yeah. My understanding is they, they, they have a a process to, to, to come to the sort of, how they sum it all together, but it's broken down into nine domains. The first will be, I think, very dear to you, psychological well-being, then health, education, time use, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, and living standards. So these are the nine domains that make up their, their index. And again, this is what they chose as a through their own processes. But I, I, if you don't mind, I want to take this a slightly different direction because yes. it's, a, it's a fascinating concept as a whole. And yet the invitation to be creative around this was something that I think not necessarily obvious to each of us as individuals. Like this happens on a country level. What, what can I do? Maybe I can lobby for this to be brought in in some way uh, at the country level. What I think 
I didn't realize, and maybe most people didn't realize, was that there's ways of taking these concepts and making them your own. And I heard from a dear friend of mine, Aria, about how she took this gross national happiness index and she made it a thing within her own family. She had her seven-year-old and 10-year-old children along with her husband around the kitchen table, and they decided together what gross family happiness meant for them as a family. And Uh and this is, for me, this is so revolutionary because so many many situations I know of where the cultural grounding is that a, a child, basically, you know, you listen to what your parents tell you. You don't really have any say. But I think we're seeing this more and more. And maybe this is, a, again, some movement that's, that's happening in, in, in generations in various different cultures. I'm not sure. But, but this idea of giving your family, giving your children a say in, in what happiness means and helping to be a part of participating in creating your own system of measurements so that, so that the things that the family considers important actually take into account what you think are important as well. And I think this, this participatory process, I think, is one of these really, really important pieces that we're hopefully going to see a lot more of. And there are some wonderful people who uh, have been writing about design justice and participatory processes and, and, and ways in which you can actually bring people to the table to participate in defining for themselves what they want to be measured by, what are the important things that we collectively want to value. And I think that piece, I think, is the important piece that hopefully we'll get to experiment more with. But I don't want to hold anybody back from doing this in their own families and with their own groups, because I I love that. That's how we build this muscle. I love this concept, gross family happiness. I want to take that concept and talk about something in your own personal life that I'm going to reveal. And that is the way you walk the walk as well as talk the talk, if I understand correctly is that you live in a communal situation called Embassy Network. Is that correct, Tony? I've been very lucky to have, over the last, I'd say, decade or so, been part of a community that's based in San Francisco, but also based elsewhere through a network of very informal friendship-based connections and relationships, but a series of communal living houses that have been... I think building on a lineage of of communal living that goes back decades, if not you know centuries and millennia. But this instantiation, I think, is specific to this moment in time, and maybe a little bit of the Bay Area psychogeography as well. In that it blends a little bit of both the sort of techno utopian scientific with the I think social humanist artistic creative with the efforts to learn in the open. In in terms of like we have right now this again bequest from generations before us in terms of ways of learning in the open ways of sharing the the whole earth catalog the, the that that led to you know the well and then the internet and the pc revolution then then that led to i think the potential for you know what it means to participate in sharing of the create sharing in the creation of things that you know might then go and ripple out and uh, around the world and from from our base in San Francisco, we've had people come stay with us and build and build communities elsewhere. And uh, the last few years, I've I've had the the joy of spending a bit of time trying to weave between some of these communities as well. And uh, and so, well, do I'm you no mind fully permanently based in the Bay Area? But sorry, go ahead. Do you mind telling us where the other embassy networks are on the on the planet? Well, I wouldn't. Uh, again, I don't want to 
speak of this as uh, overly institutional as a as a sort of a very uh, legal entity or a structured piece, but understood our, our friends our, our friends and fellow sort of walkers of this path include uh, a place in France uh, called the the Chateau du Fay. There's a community that's there part of the year round called Fatopia that that's that's gathered in in the countryside. There's a there's a space in Puerto Rico that's uh, run by a, a dear friend Gillian. There's there's spaces in New Zealand that we've been spending more time in, and there's some beautiful community based sort of more spread out again rural living in a in a space called Mangaroa Valley just north of Wellington. And there are various different co living houses around the Bay Area that are a part of a broader coalition that goes under the name HB Commons. And again, these are loosely affiliated spaces where people are sharing a, a different way of choosing to live together with a bit more intentionality. And I, I think that, that that movement is is a disparate movement, but people find their way between them. And we- having lived alongside others like that, it, it's hard to step away from living like that. So you've been living in the Embassy Network, one of these community living situations in San Francisco, I think I heard you say for 10 years. So you can tell us about it. Uh, does it have a, a constitution? Is there Are there agreements amongst the people? Do you have a gross national Embassy Network happiness czar? Tell us a little about it. Well, I'm not formally a resident anymore there, but I, I do stay at the embassy when I'm back in San Francisco. Uh, I see. And and consider myself very much a part of the, the, the family. I'm spending most of my time in either up here at Wilbur or in Europe or in New Zealand, but I can I can speak to some of these early constitutional moments, as it were. I think that there's baseline governance, things such as consensus around people coming in. And there's sort of very baseline practical things like do your own dishes and try and leave every space a little better uh, than when you found it. Those are, those are important. Things, those are those important. Those are very important. I think the sort of the entrance sort of as a, as a resident is, is a process that, you know, it's not just consensus. Somebody has to be really excited about you as well. And so other pieces are play out through experimentation. And we had a six-month period where we should be uh, experimented with six different governance systems for our house, including dictatorship and corporate corporatocracy, but also through to communism and uh, duocracy. And there's some write-ups about those experiments, I think. But again, a lot of this is is based around, uh, I think, on the part of people who are living at the embassy, a desire to, to be in, as intentional as possible about walking the talk, as you said. You know, what does it mean to uh, be living in a commons style situation where, you know, the majority of the space that you occupy is actually shared with other people. I think it's important to have, you know, your own sacred spaces and a room can serve as that, but to be able to build a sense of sacredness around a communal space with other people together, I think is, is, is so, is so special. And when you have that additional layer of intentionality around appreciating what other people are doing as well, I think these are the the practical aspects. And again, that that manifested in our situ- in our case as a a Slack channel that was about bragging on behalf of you know things other people had done for the community or even things that you'd done yourself. Bilbo braggings, we called it. But I think it's also about keeping things fun and joyful and recognizing that you know that home uh, needs to be a space of rejuvenation as well. Tony. That was part of opening up the space to, to others to come and share it with us. I, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I'd like to ask you to come back because we're at the end of the hour and I've got to stop right now. 
it, it, it's been a it's been a real education, a privilege talking to you. I hope you will come back. I, I I'd like to do perhaps a whole program just on Embassy Network on 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 intentional communities in this country and around the world. So. Well, there are some wonderful people I can recommend who've spent a lot of time okay. uh, building and working with those. Uh, I'm, I'd, I'd like to say I've been more a beneficiary of intentional communities, but I'm, I'm doing my best to try and weave them together as well around the world. Well, anybody, I see you've been listening to some of my broadcasts, and I want you to know that anybody that you're willing to refer to me, I will be happy to have on the program because I, I, I trust your work. I love what you're doing, Tony, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Richard. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast every Tuesday morning a new program at 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning for 9 Pacific Standard Time. And, of course, the archives of all these terrific people like Tony Lay that we've been having on for the last 20 years. The archives are open source, no charge to you. You can go on and listen to other fantastic people. I want to recommend one program for sure right now, which is Sylvia Earle, the world's foremost oceanographer. Please listen to her and listen to Obi Kaufman. These are two people talking about the environment in very important ways. So thanks. Until I see you next time, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.